Welcome to this week's episode of the Captimizer podcast. Today's guest is a neuroscientist from Stanford University, Malise Balbon. Dr. Balbon is one of the founders of NeuroSmart, which is, I think, one of the most cutting edge pieces of training technology that's hit the law enforcement market in a long time. Their technology monitors emotional and cognitive stress during scenario-based training sessions and maps an officer's stress prior, during, and after critical decisions in scenario-based training. This allows officers and trainers to improve self-awareness and ultimately improve de-escalation skills because de-escalation starts with the self. Their team at Stanford has come together as part of the hacking for defense course, uh, where their technology is really based on decades-long neuroscience and machine learning research conducted uh, at the university and other places. They've been awarded an SBIR phase one grant from the National Science Foundation to launch a pilot program with agencies around the country, and they've tested it in agencies around the country. I would tell you to go to their website and it's, which is called neurosmartinc.com. And look at the information and look at the video that they did with the Michigan State Police. This is a fascinating discussion that really gets to the cutting edge of what training needs to look like in the future. So without further ado, here's Dr. Melise Balbon. Greetings, all. Welcome back to the Captimizer podcast. Today, you just heard the introduction for our guest, and I have been super excited to have this conversation. I think at this point, everyone knows that I geek out a little bit on sciencey stuff. Um, if you don't, you'll know for sure after this. Melise Balbon, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thanks. Thank you for having me. So, we talked a little bit of, on the intro about NeuroSmart, but let's just kick it off. What is NeuroSmart and what is your research and what is your background? Um, sure, so I'll start with my background. Uh, my name is Melissa Ilmaz Balban. I am a neuroscientist by training. I did my PhD studying the threat responses in rodents and in neural circuits that control these threat responses. And then I realized throughout my PhD that we are too much like rodents and wanted to study the similar <laughs> questions in, in humans in, in terms of fear and how we how we respond under threat. Um, and then I moved to uh, Andrew Huberman's lab at Stanford to do my postdoc research where I studied human threat responses using uh, physiological monitoring and, and uh, virtual reality uh, technology. And then I also looked at um, interventions to mitigate the effects of stress and uh, published several articles on that. Um, along while, during my research, I um, always, I, I saw that I observed over and over again, certain features of physiological responses, like the body's responses to threat were 
predictive of certain behaviors, certain types of behavior. So there was this relationship between the physiology and the decision-making. And I wanted to show this to people. I wanted to make people aware of this and that by regulating our physiology, we can we can actually optimize our decision-making and, and behavior under threat. And so with that insight, I found NeuroSmart. I found it NeuroSmart. Um, and NeuroSmart, we're developing, my team and I are developing a um, technology to train for effective self-awareness and self-regulation and ultimately better decision-making under stress. Um, the way that we're doing it is we monitor it, um, monitor the body's fight or flight response via a sensor you're just wearing on the arm. You can see it, I'm wearing it over here. Um, Interesting, yeah. And um, that connects to a mobile phone via Bluetooth and runs it through our algorithms to give you a score of whether you're regulating optimally or not, uh, or whether you're approaching a zone that you'll make critical uh, mistakes. And um, so with this idea, we built our prototype and we got a grant from the National Science Foundation um, to, to really continue to do our research on this technology. Um, our target right now is, as you know, is, is law enforcement. And, and um, the reason for that, uh, several folds, is one, when I first thought about, you know, who could use this, who could benefit from, from technology like this, I thought of people who need to make, you know, split second decisions that are hugely critical. And that's the technology, like this is what this tech, this particular technology really addresses because it does monitor your moment to moment reactivity to cognitive and emotional stressors as well as physical stressors. So it is not a heart rate based measure. Heart rate is not very sensitive to cognitive and emotional stress, um, but our device is. And so, um, and I thought of first responders and I went to our Coffee with Cups event in Mountain View um, and met, you know, pitched this idea, like what if you had a device that you could train your physiology for better decision-making? Um, and you know, Captain Jessica Nowoski, she's now retired uh, as deputy chief, but she she was very enthusiastic about the idea. And she said, well, let's just try it. Let's just try um, you know, what our cops respond to and, and how your device, what your device shows. And so we did some pilot work with them um, where we recorded from officers uh, while they were doing some scenario-based training in a simulator environment in, in that case. And uh, the idea there was, well, you know, we know in the lab environment that these signals can tell us about poor decision-making, but what about cops? You know, we never really tested its own cops. And so that was our first uh, pilot where we have actually seen, yes, the same, you know, cops are human too. They have the same exact uh, responses that we predict and that uh, the same kind of correlation between poor poor performance and uh, poor physiology. Um, and then that's that's how we got the grant with that pilot um, data. And then we started, you know, we launched our pilot program and, and worked with several departments, including Michigan State Police, um, City of Miami Police, um, and a group in LAPD, and, and um, built our algorithms to really look at cops physiology and their performance and training. So, yeah, so now we have this uh, product that, and we are actively actually uh, for forming partnerships with departments who are interested in using it in their training. 
Um, I'll just put it out there. If anybody's interested in learning more, they can always contact me. And I'm sure you'll share my contact information. But... Absolutely. Yeah, we'll get to that. Um, oh, my gosh. I'll stop. That, so this is this is so cool. Uh, where to start? First and foremost, uh, I, I think a lot of police officers might be familiar with uh, Andrew Huberman from his podcast, from the Huberman Labs podcast. And, you know, quick shout out to you and to him for all the work that you do. I, I'm a, I listen to it every week. <laughs> actually, I actually just shared it with a group of high school athletes this morning because I'm helping the, at our local high school uh, mm -hmm. do some of the, the summer conditioning. And of course it's getting warm and people sweat a lot. And, and so you have some people that just want to chug water. Others don't want to chug water. So trying to get them to understand the science, even there's just the science behind water. Mm -hmm. give them something to listen to. But I really think that's cool that you partnered with your police department in, in, uh, in the Valley there. Mm -hmm. We're um, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I'm right, right in the same town here as Purdue university. Purdue is a, is a engineering, a, it's a very mm -hmm. STEM oriented university. And I've done some similar work like that. And so I, I just want to start by first giving this shout out to all the universities and then, and then all the police departments that create those partnerships. If you've got a university, uh, oh my gosh, you have Stanford in your own backyard, like we have Purdue here. There are so many people out there that are willing to help and that want to help, that are looking to solve big problems and have the big brains to go with it. Um, really, really encourage everybody to engage in those partnerships. There's a ton of stuff that I could... You know, we could talk offline about what we've done with some partners at Purdue, but yeah. So you said something, obviously this is the Coptimizer podcast. We think, uh, you know, it's a, it's a play on word, cop optimization. How do we optimize our performance? How do we build towards peak performance? And one of the themes that we've generally hit on is the most important piece of equipment that any police officer has is resting in the six inch six inches in between their ears the brain um, right. and it doesn't matter what kind of car you're driving it doesn't matter what kind of gun you have it doesn't matter what kind of rifle you set up you have all the toys all those things they are very important but not nearly as important as the old noggin and optimizing our ability to use it so when you say uh, cops physiology and you're studying cop physiology, have you noticed any difference between cop physiology and just the general population and their physiology? Or what are, what are some of the things that maybe stood out to you when you started working with police officers? Well, I mean, I overall, I've seen some very general similarities. Um, so just the, the basic threat response when, when they're, when we're, faced with a threat um, and everybody shows a response and everybody has a recovery period. And, and depending on how we recover or how big your response is or how often you respond to things that do don't exist, that, that don't exist, um, your, your behavior gets influenced. So those are kind of the main themes that are shared between cops uh, and, and non-cops. Um, they, Difference. One difference that was striking to me uh, was uh, because I did my postdoc in a virtual reality experiment, um, I collected some data of threat responses in a virtual reality environment from 
you know, general population. And it was quite effective uh, VR in inducing stress responses. Um, when I did this with cops, when uh, they're simulator training, um, and it, this is just one example of like 20 officers. So there is, I just want to say the caveat is there's tons of factors that go into this type of training, you know, the, the scenario and how it's set up, yeah. how realistic the simulation is, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the responses were so much lower than their responses to the real uh, role player, like scenario-based training. So I was quite su surprised um, because I would, uh, in my experience with VR is very effective in inducing this threat, but when I looked at cops and put them in the VR and then in the real scenario, the difference was huge. So the real world scenarios were really, really um, a lot more effective. So that was surprising to me. Yeah, that not is to say that the simulators are not effective. I think there's a lot of room for using them for there are a lot of reasons for using them. Um, but perhaps creating the most amount of fear is not one of the reasons. Yeah, I think where the simulators really come in is that you can uh, you can operate those solo. You don't need anybody else to participate with you. So you can prepare and, and run through different scenarios and get yourself comfortable and, and familiar with what a response might be. And then and then you can, when you have the opportunity to test in a simulated environment using role players uh, with things like simunition, uh, maybe maybe you had an opportunity to participate in some of that training or at least watch it where police officers are shooting the paintballs at each other. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have found that, and, you know, I was a trainer for years. Uh, I, was a, I was a SWAT officer, a SWAT commander for years. And so, you know, one of the things that we were always trying to do is, is, really dose stress appropriately and ramp it up as you go. Um, it's just like, it's just like a young police officer that's entering into policing. Everything is new to them. They've never seen it before. So everything seems to be very stressful, but then after six months or a year, you know, yes. their baseline drops. Yes. Yes. So I, I, an example I try to give to uh, Police Citizens Academy in terms of how often do police officers face stressful events compared to the general population? I, I've heard data that, that will say um, over the course of their career, a police officer will see close to you know, 200 significant traumatic events uh, in their career. And I, and again, I think I'm not sure where those numbers come from. I, I think it really just depends on where you work and what your environment is. But there, it, it wouldn't be surprising to me to see that number in the thousands for officers that work in very busy agencies. So it's I, I think the challenge is is how do you uh, how do you train police officers to emotionally regulate and first and foremost understand what emotional regulation even is. Yes. Uh, in order to train for it. Um, yeah. Yes, I agree. I mean, I think um, this is what we are trying to shift the perspective a little bit here is is to training the mind and training the skill of emotional awareness and regulation rather than training for a particular stressor or a particular external event is, is well, let's what, first know what's in here, like you said, what where we are, where we need to be, and once we train on that, no matter what comes on, you know, at us, because we can't control that, 
we're more prepared and we're less likely to be uh, traumatized. But, or, and if we are traumatized, we're more likely to seek help and be aware of that. Um, so yeah, I, I think that, that training that core skill of emotional awareness and regulation is, is very, very important. Good. Okay. So again, and maybe here's another great example from, uh, from another, um, uh, researcher from Stanford, Robert Sapolsky. I think a lot of people are familiar with his work, but he wrote a book once called like, why, um, what is it like? Why zebras don't, don't get ulcers. <laughs> yeah. Why zebras don't get ulcers. That was it. Um, I have a, one of our, our police chaplains is also a psychologist and he's, he's a big fan of Sapolsky's work and he tells a funny story he, and he describes it like this. He's like, all right, you know, you've got this, um, you know, a group of zebras, they're running around in, in the plains and then all of a sudden a lion appears and they all say lion and they all run. And when they all run, then the lion catches one of them. And, you know, so that guy's a goner. And, and, and the way Dr. Will says this joke, you know, he, he's also a comedian too, which makes it kind of entertaining, but he's like, all the zebras will look and say, Oh, they got Fred. And then they go right back to baseline. Right. And so to them, the threat's over because, you know, Fred has been the sacrificial zebra. In this case, everyone else goes right back to baseline from a physiological perspective. Yes. But humans don't respond that way. Humans get that, you know, you're talking about. And, and again, I don't want to get too deep in here, but. Officers, I think, are trained to be on the awareness of the difference between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. The difference is, is it's one thing to be aware of it. It's another thing to train to be able to respond to those inevitable stressors that we're going to face. Like the zebras, it's in their physiology. They go right back down the baseline. That doesn't happen in people, though, generally. Yeah, I mean, people have a more sophisticated um, you know, threat response because we have a more uh, developed prefrontal cortex that after each event, it evaluates it and, and we have a very active what we call a default mode network which again so when i talk about you know how the brain works i talk about three networks one is a salience network whose job is to really alert us we people talk about stress people talk about fear amygdala but the real job is not for you to be scared or <laughs> to be traumatized the real job is to protect you and to get you to be alert enough so that you can respond so that's the goal of what we call the salience network so it's it will its job is to direct your attention to whatever it thinks is it's important in that moment and then what in a healthy brain what happens is the prefrontal cortex kicks in and says okay have i got the resources do i know what to do i i see you i see the threat thanks salience network for alerting me i got this you can quiet down and, you know, I have a plan, I'll handle it. I know my tactics, whatever. And then once the action is over, once the execution is over, the default mode network kicks in and says, well, what happened? Like, what does it all mean? So what is it all, like, what does that make me? Like, if let's just say I made a mistake, right? Plan went poorly. So like, did I mess up? Am I going to get fired? Like, am I a loser? What does that mean about me? So it's what I call the me network, like right? integrates everything, puts it in your storyline. 
in you know makes the story of your life based on what you think it is what what your past experiences are so these interpretation parts and even the planning part is a lot more uh, sophisticated in humans and therefore we have the tendency to linger on things longer um and you know to create maladaptive storylines and which ultimately feeds back into the salience network which makes you more hyper alert you know could make you more hyper alert and it can be a lot more you know alert in things maybe you should you know you shouldn't be and stuff like that so you can imagine how all in any of the three networks can take over and make this you know make you a dysfunctional uh person and that's kind of what I want people to be aware of. We have these networks that in a healthy state are all there so we can live a happy, healthy life, right? We need to build a storyline. We need to have a sense of self. We need to, you know, all of these things. We need to execute. We need to be alert, all these things. But um, but if if you're, you know, thinking too much, ruminating on what happened, putting it in a negative context, that will feed back into your threat response and that will make you do the poor decision and or you might be an overthinker and you might you know lack the execution and that's that's another as a I'll stop there but but just as sophisticated our brains are is one of the reasons we uh suffer from traumatic experiences after the threat is gone and I think yeah that was brilliant I've never I don't think I've ever heard it explained as simply and as well as that <laughs> that was awesome and so, you know, we hear a lot about PTSD in, in police officers. So ultimately, what PTSD is a combination of exposure to these events and then a disconnect uh, from the salience network where we're not getting, we're, we're just not reevaluating and assimilating that what happened to us in that experience in a way that we that's productive, it becomes counterproductive. Yeah. And uh, so, and I'm not saying this is just about PTSD, but if you want to, if you want to reduce the likelihood of experiencing PTSD, then not just being aware of these, these uh, three networks, it's also being aware of methods that we can utilize to intervene to make sure that we're returning these to baseline and that we're processing our experiences yes. in a very in a positive way and not a negative way yes yes absolutely i think you know after every critical incident it's incredibly important to uh, and i know this this is already being done but i'm not sure how how well it's done or if is it sufficient um but I, I think a big part of it is there is still some stigma around mental health and, and talking about mental health. And sometimes the cop might not even be aware of the trauma because sometimes the trauma comes in later, you know, like it's just a time scale. It's it's because it's it's so protect it's a protection mechanism. Trauma is a protection mechanism. It just it happens when it trauma is what I like to call it. it is what what you think is hap going to happen? What your brain predicts and what actually happens are very different from each other. So something happens to you that you never ever thought could have happened, like it just it just came out of the blue. You never thought it would happen. You never thought you would have that emotional reaction to it, and you just shut down. Essentially, that that disconnect 
happens. And when you do shut down, it can be difficult to know, you know, you can just say, I'm okay. Uh, and then, you know, those nightmares and all those symptoms appear later. So I think it's very important to create this awareness, but also to have a routine of um, techniques. Uh, like you said, it's, I mean, there are many techniques and we can go into details about it, but things like expressive journaling, things like uh, breath work, different types of breath work, um, talking with 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 a with a therapist, um, are all things that are, that could be done in the immediate aftermath of of a critical event, um, whether or not the person feels like they're okay or not. Like that's irrelevant, I think, because yeah, better safe than sorry. We we don't have that awareness. I don't think we can count on an awareness after a traumatic event. That's one of the things that does go away after a traumatic event. Yeah, that's that's so important. And we're to your, I think to your question about are we training this in policing? I think we are. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're doing it well at scale. I think we have pockets of people that that are really beginning to understand this and they're developing it. I think where the problem is for us is that um that we don't always acknowledge that the the mind and the body are connected. <laughs> we can't we can't yes. separate them. So mm -hmm. we have to we have to take a holistic approach to training our our mental and emotional health in conjunction with our physical health and with our spiritual health and do this in a way where we're again we'll come back to that optimizing um, our processes because your stated goal I think is it should be the number one goal for every police department in America is that when you hire a police officer you you have to number one hire the hire the people that are best suited for the job two you have to equip them with the best equipment and everything that and th that we can give them but then most importantly we have to train them to optimize their ability to make decisions under stress and and that's it because that's that's what every day is it's we're it and it's okay. not the it's not the hundred decisions that you make that you do right uh, or the hundred decisions that you make wrong where you still have good outcomes it's the one decision that you make wrong where you have a bad outcome mm -hmm. that can you know that can be a career ender and oftentimes sometimes people don't want to believe that it's preventable, that there were things that we could have done to intervene. And the last thing I'll say on that too, the body camera uh, proliferation in law enforcement has given us an up close view of what policing has always known. Now we just get to see it, how, how police officers do respond under stress. And we see cases of just amazing response but we also see things that scratch our head and unfortunately the the head scratching incidents are the ones that generally tend to make the big headlines and then people want to make broad generalizations about policing as a whole it's terrible it's broken it needs to be defunded um we need to, to wipe out the whole system when in reality policing has never been better we're just being exposed to areas where we need to improve and and the tools are there and people like you out there doing the research that are laying the foundation for what the future of training is going to look like there yeah. got that all out 
<laughs> yeah, thank you. I, mean, I agree that um, training the mind, training mind and the body uh, to uh, respond optimally under stress and also destigmatizing the idea around stress. I think there's a lot of myths around, you know, stress is bad for you. Like don't stress. This is a stressful job. Like, you know, all of that it's it, it to, just to know that it is a human response. It's a biological response that everybody has to a challenge and police officers it's their job to handle, you know, challenging situations. It's, it's one, it's their job. So, you know, essentially they need to regulate their, their stress. They need to befriend their stress and to know what that feels like um, in, in their body, in their mind, uh, to know their own red zones and, and their own, you know, what their comfort zone is, what they're not comfortable. So, um, so, so yeah, I, I think when they sign up, you know, as an officer to department or even in the academy, I think this needs to be core part of training. It's just the training the mind. And it's it not just, you know, lecture format, not, not just, okay, wellness, you know, we will bring in a expert who's going to talk about meditation. We'll all do a five minute meditation. And that's it. Like, obviously that's not going to be enough. Um, right. So it needs to be a standardized training, just like firearms training that's repeated. That's first, you know, you get the foundation in the academy and then it's, you have that mandatory training throughout the year to, to renew. And, and hopefully people are do it on their own as well. You know, they're, but at the very least it needs to be mandated um, as a regular part of core training. Yeah. Stress is your friend. Stress is not your enemy. Um, yeah. That's for sure. If we didn't have stress, um, we'd get eaten by a lot more um, lions <laughs> We'd get, <laughs> we'd get bitten by a lot more deadly snakes. Yes. So, uh, so overstress is a bad thing. Understress is also a bad thing where yeah. we don't, where we don't ramp up sufficiently for, for what a, a, an actual threat is. So mm -hmm. I want to go to the technology and, and just kind of, and talk about, because what you just said is critically important. It's one thing to be aware. It's another thing to practice. Right. So you have to practice these things. If you don't practice them, then you're not going to get better. Uh, firearm skills, you know, the, the psychomotor skills are perishable. If you only go to the range once a year, uh, you're in big trouble. If you know, if the doo doo hits the fan and you've got to make a, a split second decision, yes, um, you, you know, you're really you're playing with fire, and you're quite frankly, you're playing with your life. So, eight, you know, agencies do have, and this is where funding comes in, and and proper staffing. And all these things I kind of want to touch on because the environment that we're working in right now is actually counterproductive in that we don't have enough people coming into the profession. We're we're getting a different type of employee that's viewing. I think that manages stress just a little bit different. I think there's some good opportunities there with that. But we have re retiring and uh, retirements, people leaving the profession sooner than they ever used to. So now you have an existing workforce that is smaller in number, the calls for service are not decreasing. So that puts more pressure on the existing workforce, which makes these topics so important. Like, all right, if we're if we're gonna if we're gonna work people, you know, more and more in, in higher stress environments, and we really have to teach these skills for how do we train them to be better emotionally regulated. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I 
so you mentioned you mentioned something early on where you talk about heart rate isn't necessarily a good predictor for how we manage stress. I'm a you know, I've been geeking out um over for the last several years. I was wearing a Fitbit for years, Fitbit tracked heart rate, and I'll give you just a quick example. Um I was talking with uh someone on the, my department. This was probably 6 or 7 years ago. Um and he showed me his data from his Fitbit from a, a weekend shift. We work 12-hour shifts. And his baseline heart rate for the three days that he was working was over 20 beats higher per minute while he was working than when he was off. Right. So, and it, and these were uh, the the typical day. His his resting heart rate was in the mid 50s. During his workday, his resting heart rate was approaching 90 the entire day. And so mm -hmm. there were periods of time, and he didn't have any foot chases or physical fights or anything like that. He went to a few domestic disputes, like where there was some yelling, screaming, stuff like that, some emotional stressing events, but not necessarily physically stressing. Mm -hmm. And you could see there's these huge spikes in heart rate. And so I really got interested then, this was when uh, HRV was kind of starting to gain a little bit of, of notice, more specifically with athletes. But I was very curious. I'm, I'm like, okay, well, if we start looking at HRV for these officers, not just heart rate, we can start to understand when uh, when an officer is in a state of recovery and when they're not in a state of recovery. But you know, so I, I switched from a Fitbit to a, to a Whoop strap to be able to do to do that. And yeah. um, now I see even next level with what you're doing, particularly from a training environment. So, what what is it about what you're doing at NeuroSmart? First and foremost, what is it that the device is actually capturing? What What's it measuring? Sure, it measures um, the skin conductance response. So that is, or sometimes it's called a galvanic skin response. Um, it is literally the electrical conductivity of your skin. So there are two electrodes that you can see here that are, you know, that form a closed circuit and we're measuring the, the conductance or resistance of that circuit that changes as a function of sympathetic nervous system activity. So skin conductance response is some a, a measurement that's been used for decades in the lab as a measure of autonomic nervous system, particularly sympathetic nervous system activity. Uh, so when the sympathetic nervous system is activated, one of the things that happens is the sweat glands get activated by the sympathetic nerves and they start filling up uh, with sweats, which changes the electrical properties of the skin because they're right underneath it. Um, even if you're not you know, sweating profusely, you will still pick up the signal that your sweat glands are get, getting ready. Um, and so that's that's what we're measuring. It's very much, it's, it's a lot more sen sensitive than heart rate to moment to moment uh, stressors. Well, heart rate, like the example you gave is, is great because over days, if you're you know working at high stress jobs, your heart rate will be higher over a period of a day, you know, because you're, you know, your body's always responding to the challenge. Your body's always, it knows, it knows you're on the job. It knows there could be stuff. So it's that come up unexpectedly and therefore it keeps your heart rate at an elevated level, which is, which is expected. It's normal. Um, and then if it comes back down um, when that stressor is is gone. Um, but on a moment to moment basis, 
So, you know, just things like somebody puts their hand in, in a, in a backpack and is it a cell phone or is it a gun? And, uh, you know, that kind of moment to moment decisions are more, uh, more accurately reflected in the skin conductance response than the heart rate, because heart rate is, um, it's influenced by a lot of things, by physical fitness, um, motion, et cetera, et cetera. It is influenced by emotion as well. Of course it is, you know, sympathetically driven, but it's not the only thing that regulates our heart rate. Um, and so that's kind of the difference between heart rate and, and, and what we're measuring, the skin conductance. Um, as far as HRV, HRV is a good measure of parasympathetic uh, activity um, and the parasympathetic tone and how it compares to the sympathetic tone. Um, but HRV is a, you know, it, it's heart rate variability, right? So for those who are not familiar with HRV, what it is, is it looks at your heart rate, you know, your series of heart rate. It, it measures the time between each heart rate. So if you have a heart rate at 60 beats per minute, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that your heart is beating on, on the second at each second. Sometimes it's 0.7 seconds, sometimes it's 1.3 seconds, sometimes it's you know one second. And HRV is the measure of that variability between heart heartbeats. And to get a good measure, you need to have good data, series of data. So you cannot have an HRV change on a second to second basis because if you just have two heartbeats, right? Um, the the smallest you know time interval is about two minutes that it starts becoming meaningful. So in about two minutes, you can start getting some, some idea of your parasympathetic, sympathetic balance. The, the things you see on your um, numbers, you see on your typical Fitbit, whoop, those are things that uh, actually are measurement over 24 hours. So they'll give you one number for the day, uh, typically, and that's how you know your recovery, et cetera. So, um, so there are many, many measurements people uh, many ways of analyzing the HRV, but it is a statistical measure. It's not something you measure directly out of your body, like heart rate is, or just, or GSR is. So I think it's a good measure of your general stress levels. And I think as a consumer device, it's useful to kind of, I, when I was wearing it, I always saw that my HRV was higher on the weekend. So higher HRV, higher variability is associated with more recovery and 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 more sympath parasympathetic tone and a lower HRV is, is low is bad, high is high is good, <laughs> essentially. And I noticed that on the weekends I was always like I had this trend of high on the weekend and low during just like your friend with the heart rate, right? Right. Um, and so that was like interesting to see. And the days that I exercise, my HRV would go higher. Like the day after I exercise, my HRV would be higher. Um, so like just kind of seeing how those life changes are impacting or poor sleep definitely impairs HRV. Dehydration impairs HRV. Those are great like lifestyle measurements that you can use those numbers to improve your choices, your meals, even meals, you know, meals will impact your sleep will impact your HRV. Um, but they're not moment to moment decision-making. Like I can't look at your HRV and say, you're going to make a bad decision. But the technology that we're developing is making that connection. It looks like how your, how your body's responding to that threat and say, 
whether you're likely to make a poor decision or not. Yeah, that's a great distinction. And um, yes, poor sleep. And because uh, having spent the first, uh, I think it was 14 years working nights um, by choice, I loved working the night shift. Um, I didn't realize how poor my recovery was because that was just my existence. I worked nights all the time. And then I had a period of uh, six months where I was working. I was going to a, a leadership school. So I was working two weeks during the day. And then I would go back to work and was working midnight shifts for two weeks. And then I would go back to working days for two weeks and then go back. I went back to the midnight shift. And by the time I got through that, I didn't know what, which way was up. Uh, I found <laughs> quite a few, you know, it's kind of scary because there were some days where, and I told this story in one of the other episodes, but I, I found myself one morning sitting in my driveway in my car with my foot on the brake. The The car was not in park and I didn't remember how I got there. I had no idea. I'm like, I work, I 13.1 miles from, from my headquarters building to my driveway at the time. And I don't remember any of it. And so I was like, well, that, this is not good. <laughs> Like something, something has to give here. Um, just, just as a quick aside, cops, they work a lot of hours and they work irregular shifts. Shift work, it, we know is a carcinogen, you know, carcinogen. Uh, it's not good for health. So where I really think the HRV can be helpful is like you said, it's kind of like steering a battleship, right? Um, yeah. you know, uh, I, I can, I can turn, uh, you know, I can turn the wheel, but the ship's just not going to respond right away. It's going to take time. So when when you think in terms like that, the HRV, I think, can guide us in terms of making good decisions over the long term. But right. what you're talking about is the quick decision that I have to make in this moment. So I guess my question would be is if you see someone that has a, a very low recovery consistently over time, are they it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to make a bad decision under stress, but my you know, my perspective has always been, well, it, it, what it, it is setting us up for to increase the likelihood of making a bad decision. Whereas if we were in a better state of recovery, then I feel like we would be in a better position to make good decisions in those split seconds. Yes. I mean, it looks like this, it, it depends on the scale you look at it. I mean, I've seen, I've seen really healthy cups uh, making poor decisions um and you know they don't have the training <laughs> me too <laughs> been there done that and and very stressed out you know experienced sleep deprived cops still doing great decisions but who knows when they're gonna break you know like you said one day you come home and you don't remember anything and so yes for sure showing that low recovery over just gives you an alert saying, well, you need to change something, you need to sleep or something, um, your likelihood of making a poor decision, despite your training, despite your experience, despite what a good cop you are, is high right now, just because of the way your your body and mind is working. Um, but I think where our tool really comes in is, is in the beginning of a career where you don't have that experience and you generally have, haven't had that kind of stress in your life. I mean, some people come from military and maybe they've had that kind of training but a lot of cops don't and so the first time you're you know facing this kind of situation and 
And so I think that's where our tool can give the best value in showing this is your response to it. When you first started the academy, see how much you've grown, um, you know, in three months or like this is where you need to be. And this is what you need to do to get there, to be really at your optimal when you graduate and go to your patrol. Um, that's where the big, bigger value is, I think, for for us. Yeah. And that that's awesome. That's where I want to get to, because ultimately what you're talking about, and maybe maybe you have observed this in, in the trainings that you're doing. Like, so the example you gave, uh, we're running through a scenario. You have a role. Well, let's just say even if it's even virtual or even a, a live scenario, you know, role player based training, you have a suspect that you're watching his hands. That's what we train officers. Right. We're you know, we got our standoff distance. We're in a good position. We're aware of our surroundings. We're watching hands and then suddenly the hand goes into a pocket or it goes into a backpack. So on with the NeuroSmart device, if if I'm thinking about this correctly or correct me if I'm wrong, I guess, I would imagine that we're going to see a spike in activity there because we're seeing a potential stressor. Right. And now the hand comes out. I quickly identified that is a phone, uh, not a gun. And ideally, I return back to baseline. Yes. And okay, threat. It's oh, no threat. I'm there. I'm back to baseline. If if I can't tell what it is, or if I'm not trained appropriately, I get amped up. I'm way up here, and then I stay up there. And so now everything that happens next, I'm in an elevated or dysregulated position, or a, a higher state of dysregulation. Maybe maybe that's a better way to say it. Um, doesn't mean I'm going to make a poor decision next, but it means like I'm on my way to, you know, what I call, you know, the doom loop, um, you know, where I'm, I'm amping up, I'm amping up, I'm amping up. And now I get stuck into that vortex and I can't get out. And uh, I, I'm going to rely if, if I can't pull myself out, I'm going to rely on a partner or somebody else to pull me out, to snap me back, some kind of cue to bring me back down the baseline. So am I thinking about that accurately? That's exactly right. I mean, that's, you just described our best use case is, is detecting those amping ups that can happen really quickly within a scenario and that can lead to a poor decision, but it really started, you know, one minute ago when you first recognized that backpack and you got amped up, but you never really recovered from that, even though you consciously thought, okay, this is not a gun. I relax, but you didn't, you know, you're, you're, you're still alert. Uh, alert, more alert than you were uh, in the beginning of the scenario. So you're not in a kind of a more risky place, and 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 then that influences your next move. You, you know, maybe instead of I I don't know the tactics here. I'm just making it up. I don't know what's the right thing to do. Yeah. But I don't think you need of, to know the tactics, right, to understand the you know, physiology like behind. Maybe it. talking through this now that you know there's there's no gun there. Maybe you close your distance. Maybe you do, but like you do something that slightly increases the you know tension even more um and and this is something that i see over and over again and on the other you know on the other side i've seen officers that go and you know they go in pairs and one of them completely misses the threat it's completely flat signal so you just kind of go you know they align the signals and you see one of them saw it and the other one didn't just nothing um, and you want to be able to tell that. I mean, you can ask the person, of course, afterwards, but um, this also allows you to kind of see, did, did you see that? Did you see how his you know, hand moved in that split second? Did you pick up on that? And then did you recover uh, properly? So um, 
those are things that we can tell and give that feedback. Yeah, that's great. So I and I would expect a, an officer that's got a higher EQ, a higher level of emotional intelligence, is going to most likely be in a better position also to return to baseline, not make assumptions, but make decisions based on what they know is happening rather than a perceived threat. Like, what can I confirm? So um, I guess in the end, what you have is a, is a brilliant training tool that gives you diagnostic data. Um, it's giving you information. It's giving you these benchmarks. It's not telling you what to do, what not to do. It's mm -hmm. not saying good or bad. It's just telling you this is the way that your body is reacting. So it so that brings a higher level of awareness to the individual. Once I'm aware, there, hey, there are things that I'm missing and I'm not stressing when I should be. Um, and I, we would, I think we would all anticipate for a, for a young officer that's never been exposed to the things that, that a seasoned, like a field training officer or just a, a, a maybe a SWAT officer or somebody that's, that's worked in a lot of high stress environments. Mm -hmm. They just have more experience, more experience to lean back on, you know, to, to go into their own individual catalog for what's a threat, what's not, what's not a threat, yeah. assuming, assuming that they've been trained well and trained adequately yeah. and then they're and because a poor trainer someone that's amping amping somebody up that you know telling everything is a threat right everything there's a potential for everything to be a threat then we might get somebody you know, their baseline might be higher than it than it should be yeah so oh man yeah we could talk for hours about this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, each situation that I, I record from is is really unique. And um, as you said, I, I do believe the biggest value is that awareness piece. Uh, we do offer interventions as well. If the algorithm detects somebody's not regulating properly, um, it will tell them to take, you know, it will guide them through a breathing exercise. And it will, you know, advise that they do this breathing exercise prior to a call or, or during similar encounters. Um, but you know, it's, it's really that pairing of that exercise with that data to say, um, like you said, I mean, when you, when you, when you, when you're, you know, the heart rate example, again, it's, it doesn't tell you what to do, but just seeing that your heart rate is 20 beats higher on a consistent basis when you're working versus not gives you a, you know, a sense of yourself and maybe you do something about that. So I'm not I'm not sponsored by Muse. Maybe I should be. <laughs> but have you ever used the Muse headset? Yes, or... I do have one. Yes. Okay. So here and here's why I here's why I bought one, because meditation is this kind of this esoteric thing where it's like I need something tangible. Me personally, I, I don't need it. I should say I prefer something to be able to see something because if you tell me to sit down and do some controlled breathing, allow my thoughts to wander. You know, we can go through a meditation training. When I was first trying to figure it out, like sometimes I would sit in my chair for like 15 minutes and feel like, did I even get anything accomplished? Um, so when I when I heard about this technology, so for those that aren't aware, Muse is a headset that you wear. There's a couple different versions of them. I actually have the Muse 2 now and I wear it when I sleep. Um, mm -hmm. But I can see at the end of a session, I can watch my, my track, my, the activity in the brain and see when my brain is active, when it's, uh, when it, and basically when it's in a, a state of relaxation and, and I can kind of, and, and they also give you some music as a cue or sounds as a cue. If your if your mind starts to wander, the, the music gets loud. And as you come back into yourself, it, 
it settles down. So what that taught me was, okay, there are times where I feel like I'm really active, but I'm not. There are times that I feel like I'm um, not active at all, but I am. And so the data is a, just a feedback tool for me to help me in my practice. But it was in it. But after after several months of doing that, I did find myself, you know, we talk about, you know, the stimulus gap, right? From the time that we have a stimulus and the time that we react, I did find like, okay, I'm my emotional control is higher. I could feel it. I could literally feel like, okay, I'm more relaxed. I'm I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not formulating my answers in my head before the person is is done talking even just in a training environment or in a meeting environment, not even in a high stress environment, I found that was beneficial. So I see the same thing with what you're doing. It's an awareness tool. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, yeah. I, 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 I've seen um, for my personal use of my device, um, you know, I have it on majority of the time just because I'm testing it and, you know, debugging it all the time. Um but I noticed my stress levels throughout different Zoom meetings and stuff I do, you know, and and that was also eye-opening because sometimes, especially in policing, um, I mean, I mean, everybody's stressed, right? Like it's not even just policing. Well, we are most people are chronically stressed without being aware of it. And uh when we are chronically stressed, we really lose grip of our, you know, those more um nuanced responses that we give to external events we snap um easier and faster and we might notice it but we don't really have an awareness of where it's coming from or we're just in that state at that point you know just that's a higher baseline but but having a tool that that showed me look there's this you know tuesday meeting that's really significantly you know firing you up um it was really eye-opening for me. And I just said, well, do I really need this meeting? Do I, can I, you know, put it in a different time? I don't want to be in the beginning of my week in a, in a very productive time that, you know, I'm a morning person and typically Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday are, you know, my hardworking days and Thursday, I'm just kind of catching up and, you know, the dialing the week and stuff like that. So it, it allowed me to make changes, slight adjustments um, so that I could be more productive. I could be just happier and less stressed just seeing that huge difference between what my Tuesday looked like with and without that meeting <laughs> yeah that's awesome um and that's so police officers you're going especially if you're in a busy agency and you're going from call to call if you're if you're on a call that get that gets you amped up so what uh, what your device would help us do is if we can simulate some of these things in a training environment, then we take a break. We walk through a, a, a breathing exercise and and explain the why behind the breathing exercise, but then also be able to show, look, look at the data and look at the way that your physiology is responding to this to this intervention. Yeah. And now that that reinforces that positive feedback loop, like, okay, this does work. This isn't some, you know, hocus pocus thing um, that I, I that I see someone wearing funny clothes that in a funny chair doing. This is something that can be very beneficial to me. That's exactly uh, right. You see the effect of breathing immediately and that signal uh, just lowers you down. So uh, I watched 
I'm not going to change gears too much, but I on your website you uh, recorded some epi- uh, some training that you did with the Michigan State Police, and I would highly encourage all the listeners to go watch that because it was it was a much deeper uh, dive and breakdown than we're going to have time to get into today. But you talked about why the insula was the favorite part of the brain, your favorite part of the brain. So I I, I definitely. I wanted to uh, ask you about that and why and why would that would be important to cops? Because while we're not monkeys, I, I don't want to spoil it. We are knuckle draggers in a lot of sense. So. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. So insula, I mean, I my uh, love for the insula uh, started when I was uh, doing an experiment and recording brain activity from patients. So these are, you know, it's rare to record um, extracellular activity other than non-invasive devices that record, you know, the pre, <laughs> I have a simunition round in my hand. That, nice, like- <laughs> I like it. <laughs> okay, um, so, uh, what was I saying? Yeah, so so in human patients, it's, it's humans, it's difficult to, to record from brain areas that are uh, deep down. So a lot of the EEG devices um, or like mu headset and stuff like that record, you know, superficial signals. Um, and um, fMRI, of course, uh, you go in an MRI machine and you lay down still to record the brain activity down, but you can't really do much while doing that. So you can't really relate that activity to a realistic task. So we kind of took on a mission to be able to record deep deep brain signals while people are awake and acting um collaborated with um <clears throat> dr eddie chang in, in ucsf he's the head of neurosurgery at ucsf uh who operates on patients with intractable epilepsy all the time so what these patients come to the hospital he implants electrodes all over the brain um these are intracellular in, in, intra uh, cranial electrodes they go deep in your brain and um and then the patients are awake and they're waiting for the seizure to happen. So the purpose of the electrode is to locate the seizure so that the surgeon can operate on it. But while they're waiting, sometimes it can take um, a week or two or sometimes a month for a seizure to happen. Um, we went in there, we brought in a virtual reality headset and um, put them through a simulated heights situation where the where the hospital room would open up and all of a sudden they're in the sky in their hospital beds and um and just to get their you know threat responses measured and we were looking at this signal this skin conductance response at the same time recording from brain areas that um and what we found is uh among many regions that recorded insula um showed correlation with the skin skin signal that that we were recording. So that's the sympathetic nervous system activity. Um, and, and it was, you know, it was, these patients are very rare. So it was only three patients that we were able to record and they had electrodes in that particular brain region. So that's when I got really interested because I feel like finding a moment to moment correlation between a brain area and something we can measure from the skin, you know, just without going into you know, surgery to put electrodes in your brain, I thought was great that we can use a signal as a proxy for brain activity. Then I looked at what's insula, you know, what's this brain region then? At that point, I didn't know anything about it. I knew it was part of the salience network. Um, and I found that, you know, 
in, in the literature, it's this area that receives a lot of the bodily signals. So it responds to temperature, it responds to pain. Um, so it correlates with all these, um, it also responds to, to anxiety, um, <clears throat> but it correlates with uh, external, pr pr um, external signals like pain and temperature from the skin. Um, but what's even more fascinating is it has different parts. It has the posterior insula and anterior insula. The posterior insula seems to be more of a reflection of the actual temperature, actual like pain stimulus, whereas the interior insula seems to be a reflection of our interpretation of that signal. So people were asked, for example, in a in a in a study, how cold, you know, they were put in an ice ice bath and they were asked how cold did that feel, and they found that particularly interior insula is correlating um, with how they felt how cold it was. And posterior insula was correlating with how cold it actually was, the actual temperature. So there is that part of our brain that takes the you know physical external information and integrates it with your decision making or memory, whatever, and interprets it in a way you know that that now becomes your reality essentially. So so I think that that's uh, it's such a bridge. The mind and the body and 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 then other studies have found that you know you can create a sensation of gut inflammation in your in your intestines by stimulating the insula so it's not just a one-way connection of you know signal comes from the body and then it gets interpreted you can also make yourself feel a particular way by sending the signal back down so it really is a is this two-way uh hub that modulates how we feel and how we're supposed to feel based on, you know, what happens up, upstairs in the, in the brain. So that's why I'm fascinated by it. It is, you know, we always talk about the mind and body connection, but we finally found where it is physically located and evidence for it. Yeah, that's fascinating. And again, there's just another perfect example of why your work is so important, because once you recognize that and you understand that you have a way to influence it positively, then it gives you a little bit more control, or at least it, to me, it's like, that's maybe that's why I'm, I've always liked to look at data and numbers. It feels like uh, I have more influence over, over my actions and my actions that now have uh, are, are not necessarily just guided by random thoughts, but rather specific thoughts and, you know, in the end, it just comes down to training. So if if I if I train well, if I set training up appropriately and I dose stress appropriately, then I can build over time. Yeah. And and get better. Um, yeah. All right. So we got about ten minutes or so because we've been going for a while, and I'm not even like halfway through everything that I wanted to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so the other, uh, so I kind of want just you know, maybe quickly touch on. In that presentation, you also talk about the four pillars of of NeuroSmart, and you're talking about readiness, vigilance, self de-escalation, and recovery. And without you know maybe not getting into it too deep, I, the 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 de-escalation part I think is important uh, to maybe touch on a little bit more. I, I've got this mantra that you know to it's best to lead yourself first understanding what's going on inside your own brain before you try to interpret things that are going on around you. 
the, the quicker you can do that, obviously, the better it's going to be. But, you know, de-escalation is a two-way street and it's it's hard to de-escalate. We can't, you know, can't de-escalate somebody else if we can't de-escalate ourselves first. That's always yeah. it's kind of been my position. So I don't know if there's anything in there real quick that you wanted to touch on or what your, or what your thoughts are on that. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think de-escalation is a is a um, you know loaded subject these days. Yes. But <laughs> but but I you know we look at it from a self-regulation perspective. You know, it's it's not de-escalation a particular de-escalating a particular situation, but de-escalating yourself. And um, and what we do is when our tool comes in best during scenario-based training is designed for that. And so we record some data prior to the scenario start, and then we mark when the scenario starts and record data throughout the scenario, and then end when the mark when the scenario ends and record after the scenario. And based on how you, so the escalation, self the escalation score is calculated how you respond to threats throughout the scenario. That's that's when that's how we do that. And like the example we talked about earlier about somebody reaching for their backpack and you know that would be a great example where you know are you able to come back to baseline after that mini you know mini threat um or are you able to you know maybe recover only 50 percent or 60 percent um and that's where we automatically calculate and and there are many many things that happen you know some let's say it's a one of the my favorite scenarios that I work with in Michigan State is a, a sovereign citizen where you know the conversation just keeps going on and on and on and the person is not compliant um the driver is not compliant and and you can see you know when there's um stuff that they say that is triggering the officer gets triggered and and how that sometimes quickly escalates to person you know the officer opening the door and getting guy tried to, you know, this is <laughs> messy fight trying to get him out, you know, the feet seat belt and stuff, um, versus not, versus, you know, it's going being handled a little bit more less less eventful way. Yes. Yeah. Again, I don't know the correct correct uh response to this, but I can I can tell the level of action by how the person has is either keeping a level head throughout the conversation or slowly getting amped up. Uh, in the signal, I can tell how it's going to end. Um, and so, yeah, so that's what we calculate is uh, by self de-escalation. Yeah. And so every cop in America right now, if if we were, if we had one of those devices on them, just the mention of a sovereign citizen or, <laughs> yeah. or a first amendment auditor, <laughs> Did they talk to you about First Amendment auditors? No, but I can imagine. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very similar kind of. It, it's basically these groups that are antagonists. They've got a certain philosophical position, and they their their mission in life is to go around and trigger people and to generate a response. So they capture it on video and then they monetize it through their YouTube channels. Um, okay. Yeah, and. It, it, but it's it is a really good example for agencies. If you have people that are doing that in your area, this training, your device would be. I I couldn't encourage you enough to bring this in and actually train with it. So because you can show people, 
and you could really probably incorporate just actual body cam footage from events uh, that 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 an agency has experienced um, to be able to show. Okay, and now number one, we can we can we can show people where they're getting triggered, what 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 portion of the event is triggering them. So the next time that they experience that, they know all right, this is this is where <laughs> this is where I've gone off the rails before. So I got breath. I got to take a deep breath. You right. know, here's here's my cue. Um, and that is, that's brilliant training. That's yep. brilliant training. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Our favorite things. Uh, you, you could probably just get on YouTube and just, if you do a search for first amendment auditors. Yeah. Um, I'll do that. That should be yeah. fun. Um, so yeah, so our, our device also records camera. Um, and that's how we're able to sync the moment to moment camera with the stress. So you can actually see what, you know, what's the trigger. Uh, down the line, we hope to incorporate it with the body cam, so we don't, you know, need to wear an extra device for for camera. But for now, we record with the with the phone <clears throat> that we provide, so you you have the camera that's in synchrony with the stress levels. Yeah, there's there's you know there, from a wellness perspective, there's so much potential here. We'll have to we'll have to have another conversation down the road because this is where from from a physical one so. You know, the cardiovascular risk for a police officer, 18 times that of the general population, Cardio cardiovascular disease is by far and away the number one killer of cops. It's not even close. Uh, second place suicide right now is higher than, um, you know, dying by assault. It, it's yeah. higher than, you know, dying in, in, a, in a vehicular crash. So as we as we start wrapping this up, I think that's important for law enforcement leaders to really think about this. We're we're training. We have to train everything, right? There's there's certain things you just can't train out. But knowing knowing what's killing us the most, that seems like maybe we should spend more time in those areas. And I think that maybe the good news is is that it it's not going to take a lot of time. It's just it's front loading with knowledge, education, and experience. So they have the, the knowledge up front and they can make good decisions down the road throughout the course of their career. Yeah, and not just decisions, but, uh, but you know, for their health, like you said, um, to, to take care of their health and their body. Um, and, and one way to do that is, is to navigate day-to-day -day stressors uh, effectively, because if, if they can do that, then they will offset that risk by quite a bit. Um, it, I mean, the heart disease happens due to stress, due to, I mean, there are other things, of course, poor diet and stuff, but I think the, this proportion comes from the stress and, and poor regulation. Um, the other thing, so along those lines in talking about recovery, right? How long does it take to recover after an incident? How long does it recover after a shift? Um, and quite frankly, how long does it take to recover after a work cycle? Uh, 12 hours is a long is a long day, if, especially if you're experiencing high call volume. And so when we talk about trying to optimize which shifts law enforcement works, somebody has to work at night. So there's never going to be a time, uh, not in the in the foreseeable future, where police officers just aren't working at night. Um, so there, I think we have to be able to train them to how to optimize their performance when they're working at night. So how do you optimize their sleep? And, and again, wearing your device and training for, a, for an officer that's working midnights, 
they it's going to give them some data and some and some tangible feedback where they can see okay i you know my baseline is different this year than it was last year uh, yeah. what's what has changed oh well i'm working midnight shifts now i've changed my roles in the agency i'm in a new area everything that i'm doing is now new compared to what where i had experience before so yeah there's just another plug all yeah. right let's wrap this up let's end with if you in a perfect in a perfect world where do you see where do you see your technology uh integrating you just kind of i think maybe you gave us a little hint integrating with the body cameras but uh if if i'm a chief and i'm interested in this technology and i and i shoot you an email we're going we're going to get your contact stuff everything on here in a minute what what could i expect as as a chief from a police department that wants to do some of this cutting edge training if I, if I call you and have you come in and work with you. Yeah, sure. Um, so we're currently, you know, running our beta program where at a much reduced price, you can, depending on how many units you want and, you know, how, how you want to use it. But, um, you know, we're, we have kind of two arms. We do um, academies. So for that, it's a little bit of a different model where you just put it on everybody in the class and you track them over time for six months, three months, however long the academy. And, you know, they essentially get, get the best benefit, I think, because they can see their improvement. They can modulate their training along the way and, and get the best benefit. And then for departments um, that do in-service training once a year, you know, for three to four days or, or a week, uh, we offer an in-service package as well. And, and there it's typically, you know, Typically, in our experience, the trainers have some guys that in mind that they want to track over time, and they kind of put it on them in those three to four days in their scenario-based training, really get that feedback out to them, give them some tools, leave them some tools that they can take with them after the training. Um, in addition, we're now uh, launching, which hasn't launched yet, but um, the real-time uh, program where they can take the device with them in the real world. So it's outside of training. Um, so yeah, I mean, departments can give me a call and we can discuss how many devices, how many officers they they want to train and we give them a quote. And then, you know, we have like a month month free period where they can just kind of get their hands on the device. We offer train the training session. So train the trainers, they use it for a month and then they make the purchase decision or not based on that experience. That's really cool. Well, maybe I have to go back to work. <laughs> I mean, maybe I need to do yeah, it. Just... I can send one to you. We also have an individual program where. Oh you know, yeah, we'll we'll talk. Yeah. We'll definitely have to talk about that offline. Uh, obviously, yeah. there's a ton of potential for this. Um, all right. So I, I think in the end, you know, if I were to sum, if I were to summarize this, really. In, in policing in particular, we have to change the way that we train the vigilance zone. Yeah. Um, because we, we can't change what stressors we're going to encounter. Yeah. All we can do is train our response to those yeah. stressors. We and, need to learn to be comfortable in those, uh, in those high stress situations without pushing um so so i mean i talk about this in the michigan talk in detail but essentially what 
that switch from you know a normal thinking zone to a fight or flight zone does is it becomes very intolerant to ambiguity so and and you know escalating a situation either using force or you know doing something that's disproportionate is a way to end ambiguity that's our response that's how we because we cannot tolerate this back and forth this person being you know verbally attract attacking us we just can't tolerate that or you know ramping up ramping up and we come to a point where we have to end it we feel like we have to end it but we really need to learn how to be comfortable in that really uncomfortable zone and um and and our device gives you that feedback of how to get there essentially well, maybe next time we'll talk about, we could use some real world examples of yeah. if you have, if you're wearing the device and maybe you give uh, some sort of haptic feedback yeah. when the device detects that you are ramped up, you're in an elevated um, state of dysregulation, you get a little like a little vibration on your arm or someplace where you're wearing that device, where it gives you feedback, something that pulls you, it pulls you out that, mm -hmm. that when you, and you train yourself, when I feel that I know I need to take a deep breath, right. like nice, long, deep breath in through the nose, but yeah. we'll save that for next time because we're, yes, we're, be we're coming up on our time. <laughs> anything else? Is there anything that you want to cover that I haven't talked about yet? Um, anything no, I didn't ask you that I should have, there, I know there's a ton more that we could talk about, but. No, I mean, I think this was fantastic. Thank you for all your great questions. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, I can't make you commit to doing another one, but I've I've already got a <laughs> ton of questions for the next one. But until then, um, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, so um email is best. Uh email me at melise at neurosmartinc.com. That's my name, M-E-L-I-S at neurosmartinc.com. You can also go to our website and send us a note there. It's neurosmartinc.com. Um, yeah. Yep. Neurosmartinc.com. It's N-E-U-R-O-S-M-A-R-T-I-N-C.com. Yep. So, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for spending some of your valuable time with us. This was yeah. incredibly insightful. Yeah. I might have to go back to work just so I can work with you. Yes, please because... do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, everybody, until the next time, um, 1042, and we're going to throw up the, uh, the video from the, her speak, her talk that she did it with the Michigan state police. We'll throw that in the show notes. We'll throw up those websites and, uh, yeah, don't hesitate. Reach out now because this is the future of training.